Amen. It's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. We'll have a little more extended time of worship at the end of our service. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at The Journey, and we're going to continue this week in our sermon series called Best Supporting Actors, the Old Testament edition. We'll be looking at some perhaps lesser-known characters in the Old Testament of the Bible. And for today, we're going to turn to the book of Exodus, um, which is actually a pretty well-known book of the Bible, and some fairly famous things happen in Exodus. We have Moses and the burning bush. We have Pharaoh, let my people go. There's uh, plagues. There's the parting of the Red Sea. And later on, there's the Ten Commandments that get introduced all in Exodus. And a lot of this stuff is fairly well known, even outside of church circles, because some major motion pictures have been made about the events in Exodus, or at least the first half of Exodus. Uh, but today we're going to be looking at the second half of Exodus. And now I have been a passionate and devoted reader of the Bible for many years, and I have to admit that for, for most of the time, I've looked at what we're going to look at today and thought, this is so boring, like tedious. As epic as the parting of the Red Sea is, the end of Exodus has seemed epically boring to me. Now, I think that says more about me than it does about the actual text, but I also think I'm not alone in how I've felt. Because while even many people who don't read the Bible have heard of Moses before, many people who do read the Bible have not heard of the people we're going to look at today. And their names are Bezalel and Oholiab. Bezalel and Oholiab. Now, even when our preaching team was brainstorming this series, I remember saying, well, what about those, those two guys? They're in Exodus somewhere, and I had to flip open to actually get the names right. But the names are Bezalel and Oholiab. Would you say them with me? Bezalel and Oholiab. Say their names now because God seemed to think it was important to say their names and to make sure that we heard them and that we remembered them and that their story was recorded and honored for us. Bezalel and Oholiab, they are pretty central actually in the book of Exodus. They play a very important role in a very important event in the Bible, which is the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle you can see it looks something like this. This was, for many centuries, actually, the central point of worship for God's people. This was a, a kind of a portable worship center that the Israelites could take with them as they wandered through the desert. And then it found a home later in the Promised Land. But there's a, what's called the Tent of Meeting, where God's presence and glory would dwell among his people. There's an altar there for sacrifices that people could bring as an act of worship. Um, this was the place that God's people went to meet God, to encounter God, and to worship God for many, many generations, the tabernacle. And much of the second half of Exodus is devoted to the building of this thing. So we won't read it all, but a little bit of an overview. So chapters 25 through 31 of Exodus describe the instructions for how this tabernacle was to be built. Exodus 25 to 31 is very, very detailed instructions. There's a lot of ink given to this. Every single part and component of the tabernacle. What materials to use exactly? What color everything should be? What are the exact measurements and dimensions for all the different things? The recipe for incense. Like every, every little detail is recorded here. And, and God tells Moses all this stuff. This is all of how you're supposed to build this thing. And then it culminates in chapter 31. If you would turn there with me, that's where we meet our characters today. In Exodus 31, it's page 63 in most of your pew Bibles. 
After God has given Moses all of these instructions for how to build this stuff, he introduces them to these folks. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. And here's the list of things. The tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. So here we get the, the list of all the things that, that the previous part goes into detail to describe exactly how it's all to be made. And we are introduced to the folks who are now in charge of making it all. Bezalel and Oholiab, and not only them, but a whole host of other skilled workers who the Lord has given all these particular abilities and talents. It takes a lot of particular skill sets to pull this thing off, and these are the people who are going to do it, this very, very important work. Bezalel and Oholiab are, are the sort of project managers, so to speak, who oversee the whole thing. And then some other things happen in Exodus. We take a little detour, and then we pick back up in chapter 35. And chapter 35, all the way to the end of Exodus, describes the building of the tabernacle. And really, it's all the exact same details as the previous part, except chapters 25 to 31 describe the instructions for building the tabernacle. 35 to 40 describe the actual work of doing it that the people do. And if you'll flip over a couple pages to chapter 35, We'll begin in verse 30. Before the work begins, Bezalel and Aholiab are highlighted again. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Oholiab, son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work, as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. So Bezalel, Oholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. So first it was God telling Moses about these guys, and now it's Moses telling all the people about these guys, Bezalel and Oholiab. We get some of the exact same details in this passage as the one before, but there's also an emphasis in this one on their ability to teach others. 
This is a huge part of Bezalel and Oholiab's role, not just to use their own skills to do the work, but to empower and activate and, and coordinate the skills and talents and abilities of a whole host of people and, and to empower them as well to work together. This is such important work that God has given them to do. And, and so they do it. The, the next chapters describe them doing it, and it culminates kind of in chapter 39, which will be on your screen. Now, once they build everything they're supposed to build, it says, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. So many stories in the Old Testament of God's people are the stories of failure in one way or another to do what the Lord has asked his people to do, but this is not one of them. Bezalel and Oholiab and all who work with them, they do exactly what God has asked them to do. And God blesses them and honors them for that work. And he celebrates their work. And this work was really hands-on, practical, down-to-earth work done with their hands. The work that's mentioned is, is construction, stone-cutting, woodworking, craftsmanship, artistry, engraving, design, and embroidering. This is all work that God, through Scripture, wanted to make sure that we honored and that we remembered. That was important to him. As we think about some practical takeaways from this story, I want to highlight three phrases that get repeated throughout the the Scriptures that talk about Bezalel and Aholiab. Three repeated phrases. One is that they were filled with the Spirit of God. These were Spirit-filled People, and they were filled with the Spirit of God not to prophesy or to preach or to do you know, huge dramatic acts of bravery. They were filled with God's Spirit in order to build, to use their hands and to use practical abilities to construct this thing. That was evidence of God's Spirit at work in them. It's important to realize that all of these things were God-given abilities, God-given gifts. The scripture goes out of its way to point that out, that the Lord had given all these people these abilities. And the Lord ultimately gives all of us all of our abilities and skills, which I think can be both very affirming uh, and also very humbling. I think it can be affirming if we're tempted to downplay the skills and abilities that we have, the particular things that we are able to do and are in a position to do. Some of us might think little of what we're able to do. We might look at other people and think, well, those are some real skills, real abilities. Those are real, like, that's the Spirit of God at work. Me, like, what can I really do? It's not much. It might seem random or something we just picked up or something that's not very important maybe in the sight of God, but that's not true. Every gift and ability that we have is a gift of God, something that he actually cares deeply about as part of how he has formed us and fashioned us and, he, and created us. There's none of it that's outside the scope of what he cares about and is concerned about. It's all very important to him, and, and we, some of us are tempted to, to maybe downplay or think they're not that important, but all abilities and skills are, are the work of God in us. This also can be pretty humbling, though, because some of us, on the other hand, might be tempted to think that whatever skills and abilities we have are just because we're really awesome. You know, it's not, it's not from God, it's just we're, we're really great, but in this story, we don't see Bezalel and Aholiab boasting in any way, like, yes, we are so talented. Isn't God lucky to have us on his team right now? But it's very clear that everything they're able to do 
is a gift from God. It's God who gets all the credit, God who gets all the glory and the honor. There's no boasting here in their gifts, but only honoring God for them, and that's important. So knowing that, that God is ultimately the source of all gifts, abilities, talents, and things that we're able to do and placed in the world to do, uh, it can help us have a healthy perspective. It can keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, but also can keep us from thinking more low of ourselves than we ought to as well. But all gifts and skills ultimately are gifts from God. Then we're told, relatedly, that these people were filled with the Spirit of God and empowered for all kinds of work. All kinds. Comes up a few times here. We, we read about all kinds of skills, all kinds of artistic crafts, and all kinds of work. The Spirit of God is not just at work when we're doing quote-unquote spiritual work, but actually all kinds of work is evidence of the activity of God in our lives and how he formed us and how he's called us to, to live out our vocations in this world. All kinds of work. And we need to be careful, as a church in particular, not to rank different kinds of work and different kinds of activities and different kinds of skills and abilities as maybe some are more spiritual than others, more important than others. It's not true. And actually, really, everybody does that in some way. Every, everyone ranks work. Every culture for all time, every subculture, every grouping of people all has different kinds of ways that they rank some kinds of work as particularly important or significant or honorable or prestigious and others less so. Everybody does that. And as a church, we need to be careful not to just blindly adopt any cultural ranking of different kinds of work and different kinds of skills and abilities. And we also need to watch out for some particularly churchy forms of doing this, where we rank certain types of gifts and certain types of vocations as more holy, more special in the sight of God than others. It's not really true. I mean, which, which gifts and abilities of, of the church are really the most important ones? Exodus doesn't just highlight the abilities of Moses, the great prophet and teacher and leader of the people of God. It doesn't just highlight the abilities of Aaron and his sons, the priests, the ones who led worship and offered sacrifices and were in vocational ministry. It highlights with some significant airtime, Bezalel, Oholiab, and all the skilled workers. All of these gifts matter in the sight of God. They're important. So we need to honor every gift and ability and calling in the people of God. I trust that if you've been coming here for any length of time that you've hopefully encountered God in some way in this space, this physical sanctuary, that God has in some way touched your life with his love, with his power, his presence, that you've grown in, in your love for God and understanding of who he is. And, and there's a lot of gifts that, that you can thank God for if that's been true. Some of them are in people that you see up here, perhaps the teaching team, the worship team, as they lead us in, into an encounter with God. Uh, thank God for those gifts, uh, but those are the ones we see. We see the, the abilities and skills of our worship team up here on the platform. Uh, as they lead us. But if we're going to thank God for them, then we need to also thank God every bit as much for my man Glenn Williams, who constructed this platform, reconstructed it really. He expanded it in order to accommodate a larger worship team. And, and he did so excellently and very carefully to preserve the original handcrafted woodworking that was part of this original platform many years ago. We thank God for that work. And you know, none of us up here exercising the things that God has called us to do uh, are ever afraid that we're going to fall down because we know that Glenn does his work really well. And God celebrates and honors 
that work. I think of Paul Maynard, who has spent so, so many hours here throughout the week donating his time and his skills as an electrician and devoting his craft to this building so that, you know, for a number of things, that he's helped us to get air conditioning, hallelujah, which makes people want to come here in the first place in the summer and to worship God in a less distracted way. He's helped us to be up to code so we can actually be here and to do ministry in an electronic digital age. Paul's given so much, and, and we honor that work because God honors that work. He sees it. Uh, this, this place is clean and nice, you know. We take for granted, perhaps, that we come to worship on a Saturday or Sunday in a sanitary environment. Well, you know, there are hundreds of people who come in and out of this building every week, and we bring with us and leave behind us all kinds of mess. And yet we show up for worship in a sanitary and a clean and a safe space because Aguada and Jesus come in here twice a week and they clean diligently and with, and with excellence. And, you know, the, the sanitation doesn't just happen. You know, it happens through a lot of hard, dedicated, excellent work. And most of us are not watching them do that work, but trust me when I tell you that God is watching them. And he sees it and he honors it, that kind of work. I want to just highlight a few more people that I see here when I come into this space during the week to do work. They're uh, in a picture here. Some of them, Pastor Tom and Daisy, they, they get paid to be here. They're always here. But these four guys are here a lot too. Wes and Don and Roland and Jerry. They don't get paid to be here, but they offer their skills, their crafts, the things they know how to do. They're making a list here in this picture of, of tasks and projects to keep this building up to speed, to keep it excellent in condition for, for ministry to happen here. And they've been doing this, some of them, for a really long time and others with them. They devote a lot of time here to keep this place in good shape. And, and people notice, and I've had, talked to a lot of contractors who've come here. I talked to city councilors who came here this past week for an important meeting, and they all say, wow, that building is great. It's in great shape for such an old building. And it, and it is, you know, but that doesn't just happen. Again, you know, it matters that the people who built it in the first place, the Swedish shipbuilders applying their skills, did it in a really excellent way, and that people like Roland and Don and Jerry and Wes and others like them continue to, to keep it in great shape. That work really matters in the sight of God. And you know, I could go on all day, really, uh, for all the contributions people have made, but we don't have time, and I'd invariably forget somebody. Uh, but if you have contributed in any way to the physical well-being of this space through keeping it nice, keeping it um, beautiful. God remembers that. He remembers that work, and he honors it. All kinds of work. And now, when we talk about all kinds of work, though, we're not just talking about work in the church, we're not just talking about work in this kind of space, but the work of the church is the work of the church, the people of God, who do work in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of spaces that God equips and empowers us and sends us to do. All kinds of work, not just church work, matters in the sight of God and is part of his redemptive purposes in the world and reflecting his image in the world. All kinds. I don't have time today to give a whole theology of work and the significance of all kinds of work, but I will point you to two things. One, actually a podcast. I did a, I did a sermon on this a few years ago, I remembered. Labor Day 2014, Labor Day weekend. So if you go back in our podcast to 2014, there's a sermon called Back to Work, um, and I re-listened to it this week to make sure it was worth telling you about, and it actually is. I thought, wow, thanks God for those words. That was actually pretty good. Uh, so if you want a 30-minute podcast, uh, you can go there. 
If you want something a little more in-depth, a little more an investment, there's a great book by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work by Tim Keller. It's a pretty robust theology of the significance of work as a part of bearing God's image in the world, a part of what he created us to do, and part of his redemptive work in the world. I would highly recommend it. I'll give you just a little taste. So in one chapter, Keller establishes that you know, we've been created to work and that the physical world is of great value to God because he made it and he made us to be stewards over it. He says, this means that, quote, secular work has no less dignity and nobility than the, quote, sacred work of ministry. We are both body and soul, and the biblical idea of shalom includes both physical thriving as well as spiritual. So food that nourishes, roofs that hold out rain, shade that protects from the heat of the sun, the satisfaction of the material needs and desires of men and women. When businesses produce material things that enhance the welfare of the community, they are engaged in work that matters to God. All kinds of work that God empowers us to do by his spirit. The spirit is at work in all these things, not just the, the quote, spiritual work. Uh, I want to close this section with one scripture that's actually been pretty foundational to how we think about our church and, and how we empower leadership. This is from Ephesians chapter four. Paul says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So there are a few particular gifts and leadership functions that get highlighted here, uh, but why? It's not that Christ gave apostles and pastors and whatnot so that they could do everything or so that they could do the really important stuff, but so that the really important stuff could happen by everybody doing the work that God has gifted and called and empowered them to do. As each part does its work, that is how God's glory is manifested in the world, not just through any kind of select few, but as every part does its work. Your part absolutely matters. Whatever work you do, whether you get paid for it or not, there's work that you do in this world that is of great value in the sight of God. So they're filled with the Spirit of God, empowered to do all kinds of work. And then third repeated phrase in our scripture today is that they did everything exactly as the Lord commanded. Bezalel, Aholiab, and the others, they did just as the Lord commanded. And this is important, because God is the one over and above all of this work. We don't have any real biographical details on Bezalel and Aholiab, um, but we know that they didn't just appear out of thin air in the desert one day. And one thing we do know about their background is that they, like the whole nation of Israel, had come out of slavery. They spent most of their lives up until this point, they were born into slavery, and until God rescued them, had been slaves in Egypt. And Egypt, like any other great civilization, was built up, at least in part, on the exploited labor of others. And so most of Bezalel and Aholiab's early labor, early working out of their skills and talents, was done under the oppressive rule of Pharaoh. Until one day God rescued his people and set them free and actually formed this nation and gave them a whole new identity as his people. They were fundamentally a free people. That is part of Bezalel and Aholiab's journey. And there's a couple important things about this. One is that freedom for them didn't mean that they no longer had any authority to answer to. 
So it's not that they got out from the, the oppressive rule of Pharaoh and then were like, oh, we're free to do whatever the heck we want to. Now I'm going to build what I want to build. No, they, they now build what the Lord tells them to build. And it's important to know that freedom for the people of God is not just the ability to do whatever the heck we want to. But coming to faith, coming to be one of God's people is just a transfer uh, from one authority to actually a good authority, living under the good and loving and gracious rule of God, but not no authority whatsoever. And so Bezalel, Oholiab, they are set free from Egypt to actually live under the good and right and just and holy rule of God. And they do just as the Lord had commanded. And it's interesting what that meant for, for them, to now live under God's authority and to do what he commanded. It actually, in many ways, meant continuing to do what they were good at doing. It didn't mean a whole change of careers once they became God's people. It does mean that for some people sometimes. Now, uh, Aaron and his sons are mentioned here. They became priests uh, as they adopted a new identity. They became worship leaders in the tabernacle. They went into vocational ministry, so to speak. That happens to some people. That's my story. Uh, I was not growing up thinking I would be a pastor, for sure. I was well on my way to doing other things, but when God uh, interrupted and, in a glorious way in my life as a young adult, I had a whole new life. Everything was changed, a whole new identity, and part of living under God's authority meant uh, laying my career plans before him, allowing him to reshape them and put me in a different direction. That could happen for some of you, maybe what God wants to do in your life, but for many people, Bezalel, Oholiab, and a whole host of others, you know, coming into a whole new identity in God does not mean necessarily doing a whole new thing. It just may mean doing the same thing differently. Doing the same thing differently. They're still building stuff. They're still using their hands. They're still designing. They're still being artistic. They're still using their skills. But it's with a whole different purpose now. It's, it's with a whole different sense of what it's all for, what it's all about. That, oh, this is all from God. This is a gift from God, and I'm going to use it for the glory of God in the world. So in many ways, the work of God, the intervention of God in our life, it changes everything about who we are. It changes our whole identity, but it may not change our vocation. It may just mean doing the same thing differently with renewed purpose and with a, with a passion and a desire to extend God's glory and God's grace and God's peace and shalom into the world, to do our work in a godly way, to reflect his character, his love, his justice, his mercy, and his compassion, to do not different work, but the same work differently. Because God is at work, again, his spirit, in all kinds of work. And Bezalel and Aholiab, they sure do what they do from now on for the glory of God. And the glory of God really shows up in their work in a profound way. So if you go to the very end of Exodus, in chapter 40, after they've built everything they've built and after the tabernacle has been set up and put together, this is what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled this place, this thing that people worked so hard and so carefully to build with excellence and with beauty. That is where the glory of God would dwell. For generations and generations, that was the place where God drew near to his people to dwell among them. And that's why all this stuff matters. And so one final takeaway I want to I land on this morning from this story is that the glory of God inhabits physical spaces. 
The glory of God inhabits physical spaces. It's not just like out there somewhere in a, in a vague spiritual realm somewhere. The glory of God is manifested among us in physical space and time and with our physical bodies. That's why all this stuff matters. There are other worldviews that teach that the physical world, the material world, is inherently bad. Uh, it's unfixable, or it's, or it's an accident, or it's an illusion that we need to be free from, and somehow to, to really experience true spirituality or enlightenment or truth or something. We've got to kind of get past the physical, the material stuff into some other sort of realm. Well, that's actually not what the Bible teaches at all. And biblical Christianity is, is unabashedly affirming of the dignity and worth of the physical world as created by God, created good by God, and that he put us as stewards over this physical world. It's part of what it means to bear God's image in the world. And that's where he meets us, in physical space and time. That is the ground of God's redemptive work and the thing that he's going to renew fully one day, the physical material world. That's where God's glory is found. Christian faith is not some kind of vague, mystical thing detached from the physical. Not at all. God's glory dwells in physical spaces. It certainly does here in this tabernacle, this thing that, that people built with their hands so carefully and skillfully. That's where God's glory was to be found. But now this tabernacle, it should be noted, didn't last forever. It served its purpose for a time and for generations, but later on, God would come to dwell among his people in the most profound, the most personal way, the most intimate way. And he did so not with clouds of fire or smoke or any spectacular otherworldly manifestation of his glory, but he did it by assuming a human body, one that just like Bezalel's was a descendant physically of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus Christ, who came to dwell among us. The gospel writer John in the, the opening of his gospel describes Jesus as the eternal word of God, the one who has existed always from the beginning, who is himself God, full of the glory of God, and then he tells us this. Let's read it together. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory came to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and, and this phrase, uh, made his dwelling among us, it comes from a Greek verb, skenao, which is essentially a verb form of the word tabernacle that God's glory came to tabernacle among us in the person, in the body of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I always thought all this stuff at the end of Exodus was so boring, probably because I opened up looking for God to maybe do something a little more flashy, a little more spectacular, a little more dramatic than what he does here by giving instructions for a carefully constructed building. But that's the place where God's glory shows up and where God's glory dwells. And the gospel writer John goes on to say that although in Jesus the full glory of God had come to dwell among us, that many people didn't recognize it. Because perhaps they were looking for God to do something a little more flashy, a little more spectacular, a little more otherworldly than to be born as a human being. They weren't looking for God to assume the flesh of a baby born to poor parents that needed to be nursed and cared for. They weren't looking for God to grow up learning a craft and a trade from his working class dad. They weren't looking for a God who would spend most of his adult working years practicing that craft as a carpenter. They weren't looking for a God to 
live his life in humility and pour it out in sacrificial love. And they certainly weren't looking for God to ultimately lay down that life and lay down that very body as a sacrifice for us. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And that's exactly where the glory of God is most profoundly displayed in the world. It's in the self-sacrificial, humble love of Jesus Christ who laid down his life, his physical body as a sacrifice for us so that we could draw near to God because now we don't need a tabernacle anymore. We can approach God wherever because the one sacrifice once and for all needed for our sins has been made. And so we can draw near to God, experience his presence, worship him from any physical space we find ourselves, whether here or out there anywhere. Any physical space where your physical body is is a place where you can encounter the glory of God thanks to Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And so we're going to dwell on that a bit this morning. We're going to actually celebrate communion together. It's very appropriate. And this is actually the one thing that Jesus told his followers to do to remember him. And it's such an interesting thing, such a physical thing. Jesus didn't say, remember me by closing your eyes and thinking really hard or by detaching some way, trying to get to some other realm. No, he, he said, remember me by opening your eyes and opening your hands to take some real physical stuff, some bread and wine, and to remember that it is in in this physical stuff, in my physical body, that the glory of God drew near to you and made a way for you. Jesus said the night before he went to the cross to his followers, he took bread, just real, regular baked bread, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take this and eat it. This is my body that's broken for you. And do this to remember me. And after that, he took a cup of wine, just regular fruit of the vine wine, and he passed it around. He said, take and drink this. This is my blood, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you and for many so that your sins may be forgiven. Do this to remember me. And so we're going to do this together today uh, for those of us who are, are followers of Jesus to remember him and to hopefully encounter his glory in a fresh way, not in some kind of otherworldly, other spectacular way, but by taking bread, which is allergen-free of any kind, so anyone can take it, and we're gonna, you'll take it, a server will say to you, this is Christ's body broken for you, and you can dip it into what's juice here, and a server will say, blood of Christ shed for you. And you can come forward, the servers will be up front, and we'll continue in worship together, so let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for uh, highlighting and honoring and affirming the story and the lives of Bezalel and Oholiab and all the skilled workers. Would you encourage any of us here today who, who think your glory is to be found elsewhere than in the bodies you've given us and the work you've given us to do and the places we find ourselves? Would we see afresh where you are actually glorious and at work in who you've made us to be and in what you've given us to do. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to go off someplace and escape this world to find your glory, but that you came to us and you came to dwell among us in the most personal and the most physical of ways. As we take of these elements today, would we be struck, Lord, by the profundity of, of your coming to us in the, in the human body and laying that body, that life down to make a way for us to encounter you wherever we may be. And would you empower and equip us as a church, Lord, for every good work that you have created us to do in this 
actual space of this city, in this community, this region. Thank you for every gift, every ability that you have placed in every person in this church. Would you affirm, honor, and activate every one of them for your glory. In Jesus' name.